Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Here he is, John Sales. Hey, everybody. Uh, thanks for coming. I've been thinking about a lot of the, the, the sayings that were current during the, the 60s and uh, reevaluating some. Uh, the one about not trusting anybody over 30, I'm starting to reevaluate a little. Um, but the, the, the one that I, I, I still kind of believe in is the one that, that is you're either part of the solution or you're part of the problem. Um, and I'm here tonight to introduce somebody who I, I feel has always been part of the solution. Um, people often ask me, do you really think that movies can make a difference, that it's important, you know, that they're, they're just kind of entertainment, you go, you forget about them, whatever. And I've always felt like um, from the very beginning, you know, from, from the, you know, right around 1900 when they started having movies, which were originally about, you know, 20 seconds to one minute long, and they were kind of more like video games than anything, they were an important part of the cultural conversation. And uh, and that part that movies play in the cultural conversation can be part of the solution or part of the problem. You know, if if, if you think about um, the movie's role in uh, racial relationships in in the United States, the first fifty to fifty five years of them, they were part of the problem. Um, they didn't do anything to help; they did a lot to hurt. Uh, one of the great things about getting to work with Danny Glover is somebody from the beginning of his career, um, you know, starting with the American movies he's done and then continuing because he's, he's really somebody who, who works in world cinema now, um, by the kind of emotional depth and intelligence he brings to his performances, but also the, the projects that he chooses to do and to support and to help make happen by his participation in them, um, has always been part of the solution. Um, you know, uh, uh, Danny's somebody who also goes beyond that. You know, he is a movie actor and that's what he's best known for, but he's also trying to be as much as he can part of the cultural conversation in other areas besides movies. Um, and, uh, so when, when we asked and he said yes, um, it was like, okay, we've got a movie here. Um, so I'd like to introduce Danny Glover. well congratulations on the new movie and John's going to join us later to talk about honey trip but we're uh, but we're going to Go back in time a little bit, and I guess I'll pick up on something that John brought up about um, being socially engaged and socially involved. And I, I want to ask you about a period which, which you've talked about as being very formative, which was this period when you were at San Francisco State, because I think you were a college yeah. student in 1968 and, and have talked about this being a really formative part of your career and your life. I, I, I remember coming <clears throat> um, after finishing... Uh, high school and 
spending a year at at City College in San Francisco. Hmm. It's most noted because O.J. Simpson also went to City College in San Francisco. <laughs> but I, I remember um, a friend of mine, we were a year or about a year and a half uh, difference in age, and Margie. And she was probably one of the smartest people I knew. And we'd always talk about what was happening in the civil rights movement, what was going on. We, all, we would follow the whole tra- trajectory of uh, mm-hmm. what was happening with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and all that discipline in high school. And she said, you know, you're always talking about you want to work with kids. And I was, wasn't doing anything. So working at Lone Mountain College washing dishes at the time. And she said, uh, <clears throat> there's a tutorial program out of San Francisco State College, a summer tutorial program. Well, I came out this, there that summer of 66, and it was the moment that changed my life. Um, of course, we worked with kids, and what are you doing during the summer? You help play games with them, you go swimming with them, you help build coasters and other things like that. But more than anything else, there was a little room, a little room out at San Francisco State College where people came and read poetry. And one of the people I saw reading poetry in the summer of 1966 was Sonia Sanchez. And Sonia Sanchez and Reggie Lockett and all these people. So it brought me in direct contact with a whole number of people, men and women who had been part of SNCC and had resettled, were going back to college and resettling in, in, in San Francisco, uh, in the Bay Area, all these kind of factors came together at this particular point in time in my life. Uh, we, I ended up going to San Francisco State in 1967. Uh, we invited Amiri Baraka for a semester, mm-hmm. the Associated Students, which essentially BSU controlled the Associated Student budget at that time. And, um, <laughs> and uh, he came out to do what he called a community communication program. And it was designed around poetry, um, plays, music, newsletter, all those things were happening with that time. We used the old Fillmore Auditorium, I remember. And he came into the Black Student Union uh, one afternoon, and he says, I want some of you so-called revolutionary brothers to come and be in this place. Hmm. And so I volunteered. <laughs> I had never been on stage before in my life. Uh, I say, I saved from holding the palm, and, and you know, when I was a kid on an Easter, Easter Sunday, <laughs> my mother always said, how come you kids, don't, how come my kids never have any, nothing to say? And we want to say, Mom, we don't want to say nothing. All we want to do is hold the palm. And that was, that was the first time, you know. So the first thing, the first way I came to this at San Francisco State, like all the things we came to, was that we felt we were some, of some use. We were a black student union that had an office in the community. We were involved in issues around what was called, what was then called redevelopment, which is now called gentrification. We were involved in those issues. We used a tutorial program, which had about uh, 12 centers as a way of, of inserting ourselves in the issues within the community. So it was just kind of, kind of groundswell, you know. Okay. And then the program itself. Yeah. was designed that Mary brought out, was designed to, to influence and talk and engage people in a conversation about art, using art as a way of them seeing themselves 
and telling their own stories. So we did plays like The First Militant Preacher by Ben Caldwell, or Get a Job by Ben Caldwell, uh, How Do You Do Mad Heart by Amiri himself. Uh, and so all these, all these, all this theater came out and it felt purposeful in a sense. Felt like I could be, be of some use. That's, that's how it began. You know. And did you decide at some point, I think you were um, going to be involved in city planning, community planning, and you made a career choice at some point that theater, I guess you, you were in theater first before you went into film. Well, I, 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 I think the last play I did during that really hectic, I mean, so much happened yeah. from 1967 to 1970, you know, from a right. student strike that closed the university down in 1968 for nine months and had most of his own trial <laughs> all the summer of 1969. Uh, and to, um, um, you know, all the things that we had to happen there, all the nights of spinning up. I mean, we read everything. We read Fanon. We read Césaire. We read Leopold Senghor and, and, and early Mandela. We just read it. We were just read and this is someone who's dyslexic, you know, mm. for the first time there was a purpose for reading. We read everything and talked about it and argued mm. to four o'clock in the morning about mm. theory, mm. <laughs> everything like this. Mm. And that was the kind of like what happens, what happened to me at that early stage, at, at, at that early stage. So I just do any, any, any theater after 1970 for about four years. I finished school. I went to work at the Berkeley City Planning Department. Uh, in, in, 19, in the fall of, fall of 1971. And then I came to the city and county of San Francisco in the model cities program in the office of community development, where I was a program manager and did program evaluation for six years, hmm. for six years in that time. And then somewhere mid between, in between, I, I got involved, uh, in doing improvisational theater with a little group and then, uh, decided to go to the American Conservatory of Theater at night. You know, I, during that period of time, I met Carl Lumley. Denzel was at ACT. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Delroy Linda was at ACT at that time as students. And so it, that, that's, that's yeah. abbreviated. <laughs> One to brings it up to. But with that experience, if you ever want to run for governor of California, you're all, <laughs> you're all set. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> but tell us about the importance of the playwright Athel Fugard for you, because of course your pro- the production in New York of Master Harold and the Boys brought you a lot of attention. But those plays, his plays. Well, his play- I, I, I have to certainly draw attention to first Zaysa Mokai, who was uh, I met Zaysa Mokai when I was in the, the Black Actors Workshop uh, in San Francisco at, San, at the American Conservatory of Theater. Zaysa Mokai I met in in um, that fall of 1975. And then also Bennett Gilry. Now Ben and I go back to when we were about 16 years old, when we were basically hippies together. You know what I'm saying? Ben and I go back, <laughs> way back when we, we were in high school at the same time in San Francisco. And Bennett Gilry, who came to me, who was, who was also at ACT at the time, and in the regular program, he said, like all actors do, they said, well, let's work on a, a scene. Let's work on some monologue. Let's do all this, all this stuff. Because you, you pump, you know, the ear ends. And he says, I have this play called The Blood Knot. And we started working on, on, on monologues, because they're beautiful monologues. I mean, the master of language. Yeah. That's awful guard or something else. Hmm. And so we started working on monologues. And then we started saying, well, let's, let's do the scenes. Then we, 
we went beyond that. We bought a friend of, of ours, a person I just met who I thought was just such an intelligent man, uh, Felix Justice. And said, why don't you help us with the scenes? He said, let's do the whole play. <laughs> so we did the whole play, built the sets, did the music using Dollar Brand, Marion McCabe, Letta and Bula, and that's the, the music and everything else. Built the sets, got someone to do the wardrobe for us and everything else. And in the little small theater that sat about 30 people, we did the play. And the play was four hours with the two of us on stage. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, and, then, and at that point, this was in like 19, 1976, I knew this is what I wanted to do. And I remember Ben and I looking at each other after we had finished that, after we finished the first performance, <laughs> and we just nodded at each other. But I said, you know, you're on your way there. You know what I'm saying. And, and you were in some of the film and television productions that were coming through San Francisco. Is it true you were in... Uh, an extra in Escape from Alcatraz? Yeah, I was an extra, <laughs> essentially, for the most part. But that came later. But you, you wouldn't go back to the Fugard. What, yeah. what, I, what happened yeah. with me with Fugard is that I... There's the, beauty, the beautiful thing that you have, you have with great art, artwork, great work, great writing, is that you're able to kind of say, this is what I'm about. Not only do you learn the craft of acting, and if, you, if, if I challenge any actor, there's no way that you can't learn the craft of acting and understand the craft of acting, the use of nuance, language, and all those things through Fugard. Hmm. You know? And just the same way Lorraine Hansberry. If you want to learn the craft of acting, go do Lorraine Hansberry. Arthur Miller, you know, if you want to learn the craft of Shakespeare, the craft of, the craft of acting. All those teach you. What the language, what language and the use of language and, and, and the nuance of relationships within mm-hmm. relationships. And for, for God, the added credit was that he was, we were on the same side hmm. in the world. We were looking at the world and we wanted to see we were on the same side. So here I am with material that teaches me the craft of acting, acting and at the same time I'm saying this is what is important hmm. for me in the world. So we would... We would do, Carl Lumley and I would do in Seasway Bonzi is Dead, and we would do a performance and we'd tell people to bring clothes and medical aids, and we'd send, have them pack the medical aids and stuff up and send them to Zimbabwe, you know, send them to Zambia for the people in, Zamb- uh, in ZANU at the time, because mm-hmm. we were very much, I was, I was very much involved in the African Liberation Support Committee at that time mm-hmm. in 1966, 76, excuse me, and 77. So there's a way in which you can use the, the art itself, yeah. not only in terms of telling people and, and mobilizing people, but telling them a story and having the story resonate with them and to make them active as well. And it was, uh, of course, the performance of Master Hal uh, drew the attention of Robert Benton, the director yeah, who yeah. cast you in Places in the Heart. Could you talk about making that transition and doing that film? Well, I, I, I had been fortunate enough to do some television. I, I had done a, a couple of small roles. I think I did a movie with Alan Arkin and, and Carol Burnett called Choo Choo and the Philly Flash. <laughs> Adam Arkin was in the film and, and a number of other people. Who, uh, uh, Jack Warden was in the film. And so there were a number of people in that film. And I did that. And I'd, I'd done some episodes of, uh, of, uh, I did Lou Grant, an episode of Lou Grant. <laughs> I did a, I, I was, in fact, you I did was. some Hill Street Blues. Well, I was, I was at a roundabout in 1980 doing, uh, Blood Knot. 
with Suzanne Shepard directing. And then Blood Knot, and I got a call from my agent, and they told me, don't go to New York and do anything because pilot season's coming up. And I got a call from my agent. My <laughs> agent said, there's, um, you got an offer to do a, a, t- a pilot and a guaranteed 13 episodes. And I was sitting at the roundabout getting $250, $250 a week. And, uh, and they, they didn't have an extra. I mean, excuse me, they didn't stand, have a stand, 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 yeah. stand in for yeah. me. Or they didn't have someone because they were paying me $150 so I can live on that. So, you know, and, and so I told my, I said, I can't leave this play. I'm committed to the play. I, so I turned down the series, and the series was Hill Street Blues, you know. But but if I had if I had taken the series, you never know what would have happened, right. you know. Right. I, I did Blood Knot, and one of the rehearsals in Blood Knot, who walks into the rehearsal or run through, but I thought for God, and he called me up when I was doing, uh, a, uh, I was in the second cast of a play at the LA Actors Theater, um, Nevis Mountain, do by. Uh, Carter. I was working around the theater, hanging sheetrock and doing electrical work and all that and helping build sets. And he says, Donnie, I'm doing a play at Yale Rep uh, and I want you to come and do that play. And I said, I don't know anybody in New York. The last time I left New York, I was hungry. And so <laughs> yeah, somebody's going to have to fight for me. Huh. And I said, he said, I want you to do it. And so I came back. Ben, I, Robin Benton came to opening night and then he told someone uh, who I learned became a friend that when he when he saw me washing those floors, he says, "I think I found my modes for mm. places in heart." Yeah. Mm. Mm. yeah. And and what was it like in in this time in the mid '80s? This period. This is uh, Spike Lee didn't make his first movie until 1986, and and there were not that many films being made by African American directors. And it seems like every role, every major role, there would be sort of a controversy around um, is the role in places in Too Heart too subservient is, is, is um, Mr. who you played in The Color Purple is that uh, there was a lot of, a lot of weight on, on every major role by an African American actor how did you deal with that at the time? Well I think there's so much so much has happened if we kind of look at this, this kind of arc in terms of uh, African Americans within film. Um, they've gone through that period of which mo- most people refer to as black exploitation films yeah. and everything else. And it, and it seemed like everything else that we did was geared toward television. You know, you had these great writers that would come out who wrote written plays, and you know Joseph Walker and, other, and others who would come out here from the Negro Ensemble, and they found, found that they were writing television sitcoms and everything else. It was so much yeah. energy placed upon on, on, on that, you know. And, I mean, you can't, I can't, outside of Richard Pryor, it's almost hard to identify any any actor during that period or actress yeah. during that period. Even the actors who came out of that period of black exploitation, they found that the, the work was, you know, Rosalind Cash, and that's, right. they found that the work was meager. Yeah, so it's a very interesting dynamic. So you have Places in the Heart, which is, 19, we shot that in 1983. Right. Shot that in 1983. You have Places in the Heart. You have Color Purple uh, in 1985. So, I mean, of course, you, you do a, you do a, a, a movie about, about someone 
who's a share, had been a sharecropper and picking cotton, you know, <laughs> in places in the heart. I mean, sometimes there's the, way, the ways in which you look at that film. And, but I thought that the humanity in the film far uh, overshadowed the, uh, uh, the particulars that we often yeah. associate with African Americans and the South. You know, because cotton is always associated with slavery, you know, and the, the, the aftermath of slavery and the institutional bondage of African Americans after the Emancipation Proclamation. And so those are the kind of issues that certainly you, you have to confront, you know, and whether, whether we're talking about uh, uh, Sounder or we're talking about, we, we always have this experience, that experience of African Americans circumscribed to a particular locality, locale, whether it was the real rural south in the cabin or whether it was the urban north in some sort of other kind of demeaning, uh, demeaning uh, uh, situation. And, and you were really starting to form an interesting career. Um, I believe the first of the, the four Lethal Weapon movies was at the, uh, in the late 80s. And then you, so of course you had a big sort of blockbuster hit and you got involved with producing. You produced um, not only Stardom, but ex- produced Charles Burnett's film, um, To Sleep With Anger, which was another kind of shoestring budget film which became one of the best regarded films of that whole decade. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, I mean, I had an opportunity. I remember meeting Lawrence Kasdan, and Lawrence Kasdan said, you know, I want to do a Western, you know. <laughs> he didn't say, I want to do a black, I'm, go- I'm right. going to do a Western, and I want you to be in it. He didn't say, I'm doing a black Western, yeah. I'm doing a Western. He said, with a black hero in it. And all of a sudden, Silverado, I, I'm Silverado, yeah. you yeah. know what I'm saying, after that. Or uh, when I, when Peter Weir, I met Peter Weir, and he said, I don't have very much in the, in the, in the, uh, in the film that I'm doing, what role do you want to play? I read the script and I said, I want to play the bad cop. You know what I'm saying? So there, and then you have Color Purple. And I think to Dick Donner's credit, and perhaps even to Water Brothers' credit, you know, I just finished Color Purple. Uh, War, uh, Color Purple was a Warner Brothers film, and they were doing uh, a buddy picture. And at that particular point in time, there were several actors that were looked at for, for the role, and uh, white actors. And so Dick Donald decided to go with me. I remember going and reading with Mel, and the moment we finished the reading of the script, uh, someone at, 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 from Warner Brothers said, let's go make a movie, hmm. you know. Yeah. And then what, what happened with that film is it provided me, the first one provided the leverage to do Charles' film. And the beautiful thing about but Charles' film, for me, was that even though I was born and raised in San Francisco, California, and certainly lived in the Haight-Ashbury, lived in the, lived in the Haight-Ashbury since I was 11 years old, even though I was born and raised, I've always had this strong connection to my grandparents in the South, and the rural South. My, my grandmother was a midwife, my grandfather was a poor farmer. They, when they were married in 1915, they, were, uh, they started out as, as tenant farmers and sharecroppers and everything else. And so when I read that script, there was something that came over me, all the stuff that I began to feel, um, and, and, and part of this is what I, what I, what I call now my historic memory or psychic memory began to kind of come out of me. And I, I wanted to know what was, what, this all, what was it all about? What was I touching? What world was I touching that certainly was not 
really connected to the world I have in San Francisco, but was connected to something much far more reaching than that world, you know. And that's the reason why I wanted to do the film, <laughs> in a sense, to be in the be in a space and to begin to be in the listen, because I I begin to hear the stories of my 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 grandmother, and I remember vividly stories and my, my grandfather would tell or my grandmother would tell and you'd be sitting out there because when you're off of Highway 1 and, and nothing but pitch black out there, it gets scary, you know, <laughs> as a kid. But you're hearing these stories and you're kind of moved. I wanted to kind of be, insert myself in that experience and try to understand understand that through this film. And that's, that's the beautiful thing that's happened to me. I did Places in the Heart, which I, my work is a tribute to my mother who died in an automobile accident the same day that I found out I was going to get the role. Mm. Uh, and so my work, my work is there. So I have this, that little handkerchief that I, that I give Sally is, is a handkerchief that my mother's handkerchief. So it was an, it was, I was a good, good praise to the most, you know, the, the, my life. I mean, she, she bring, brought life to me. You know what I'm saying? Mm. And, and then to be able to do a film and, and to be able to kind of, insert myself in the film and to be feeling all these things and want to know what all these things are about it, you know? And that's the beauty of that, you know? And, it's, and easily, I've been able to do some of that, not always, but often I've been able to be in, enter into a world and I want to know what that world is about. And somewhere that, in that world, it's a part of what I can be believe, and I always like to talk about a collective memory. And it's such an interesting, enigmatic character that you play in that film. And I want to ask you a bit about your approach to film acting, because we haven't talked much about the craft. You have an ability to play characters who, um, where there's a lot suggested, a lot of inner life suggested. Well, I think the work that, that, that you do in front of the camera is, is certainly connected to the work you, d- you do before you get before yeah. the camera. Yeah. You know, all the preparation. I think yeah. that, that everything that you do is about preparation, 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 you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I find my, my, my way of getting to it, uh, roles and work, you know, and, and, and a great deal of it is not prescribed to any method, mm-hmm. you know, uh, on intuition, instinct, I think play an important role. And I think whatever method that you do ascribe to, it certainly is, is, is formed within that, that, uh, that sense of using your intuition and using your sensibilities, you know, and it could be, it could be, I mean, we can, we'll talk, we can talk about a honey dripper and it's just the idea of being in front of a piano mm. and being able to divest yourself of all the innovations there are about that and to be able to see yourself as a, in, a, in just that, just the physical language itself. So most of the approach, and most of us learn this as actors from the stage, begins with how do I physicalize something? How do I center the the character? How do I place this place where the character stands and becomes, it becomes, yes, some part of Danny, but all of the other kind of manifestations of Danny's imagination and what he's learned and what he chooses to do. That's what happens in the process of doing it and then having to, to come alive. So my work comes about from all everything, from when I wake up early in the morning or I have some kind of vision of something or I see the scene or the moment right there. Or it could be anywhere from, you know, from one movie I found where I needed to go by doing Pilates, you know, 
but just doing Pilates. Mm. So all I did was I did Pilates five days a week, and I found right where I wanted to go. I found right where I wanted the character to center the character right there. And everything else came out of that. And also, it was a, for that one film, it was Pilates and John Coltrane's uh, Equinox. Mm. That got, that's what it, I heard it was playing <laughs> in my head all the time that I'm doing the Witchcock. And so everything that I'm doing is playing. So you don't it. think much about, in a, in a way it happens naturally. I mean, I'm not saying it happens naturally because there's a lot of work behind it, but, but what, what goes on inside of you, um, you trust that to project. Well, I, I, I trust that, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean it's, it's, that's why it's hard for me to look at my film because all, <laughs> all I can do is say what I was trying to do and what yeah. I was trying to trust inside of me. Yeah. Whatever, the, whatever the place we get to, you know. I, I remember Beloved, you know, and I had this room in my, my, my house where I, I call it a beloved room. Hmm. And I had pictures on the wall and I had all this and books open and everything else. And sometimes I, I'd go in there and I, and I'd look at that or I, I'd, I'd play the, the testimony that I got from the, the U.S. Congress on, on slave narratives and stuff, you know, and all the kind of things. Sometimes I'd go in there, I could sit in there five minutes and I had to get out. Because it was just too strong. And sometimes I sit in there and I find myself reading something or looking at something and crying, you know, mm-hmm. all the kind of things, you know. One thing I, I learned from early on doing theater and particularly doing food art, because every single night I would dedicate my performance to someone. Every single night when I did a food art play, I would say, I'm going to do this. This is for Nelson Mandela, or this is for uh, 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 Hector Hector Peterson, or this is for always finding some place where the work itself is elevated. The work itself takes on another life because you give the work some sort of purpose, you know. And I think on the one hand, when I think about when I look at this, what I call cultural work, which has value, then the value comes out of the purpose that you give it. I'm going to read a quote from um, a review. It's actually a review that Ben Brantley wrote of, of one of your stage performances, but uh, it reminded me of many of your film performances. Um, Mr. Glover suggests a man for whom calm is an existential choice in a violent society. It's very true in, in Honey Dripper, but there's a kind of strength that you project um, and a sense of what kind of person you want to be and what kind of inner strength you want to have that you're able to project. Well, I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, if that comes out, that it, it, yeah. it's coming from where I, where I started yeah. from yeah. and where I began with. You know, the work that John, John gave me, John Sales gave me a wonderful place to start yeah. when he wrote a kind of narrative of background, the Tyrone, you know. And then how do I, how, how do I build into that? You know, how, what do I add into it? What moments do I add? Specific moments. Specific moments at one point in time do I add to that narrative that John wrote that kind of give me another kind of clarity. And I can call on that. I can call on that because now it becomes part of my emotional life and my emotional experience. So what are the kind of moments there? What are the moments in, that, that, I, that I called on when, when at that moment when Stacy Keach and I are yeah. doing that in that place? Where, where he, he represents the law and everything that has, that has, that has slapped me in the face and everything that has come up, and, and I've come into to, to conflict with throughout my life. He represents that obstacle for me. You know, all those particular things are moments yeah. that, that you, you find and you personalize them, enrich them, whether they're the moments that I concoct in my head or the moments that I was stopped and by a policeman in San Francisco mm. and knowing that anything could happen.
at that particular moment as a kid. You know what I'm saying? All those are the kind of things that you, 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 you uh, are stories that my grandfather, when I asked my grandfather about fear, when was he said, I said, I asked my grandfather, uh, you lived in, who lived in the deep south all his life, he said, what was the moment, what moment could you talk to me about when you were really af- afraid? This is a man who was 80-something years old, just before I did um, The Color Purple, uh, 80, almost late, late 80s, and he said, he said, the moment where I was most frightful when I was working on the road, building roads in Alabama, and I was, we were in a compound with all black men working on the road, and the rumor got out that a white woman had been raped. Mm. And he said, that was the most frightening moment in my life. It was my grandfather. So I tried to picture what it meant to this man, who in some sense was his own person. You know, he, he, you know, they used to talk about how he carried his own gun around with him sometimes. But in some sense, it was amazing that that was the most frightening moment in his life. And he's seen everything, you know. I imagine he's seen everything, a lot he could speak about, and a lot that went with him to his grave. You've gotten so many great actors over the years to your films, <laughs> and, uh, and, and you've, you've said that you get some big-name actors to take a vacation from their big salaries sometimes to, to work on your film. Maybe Maggie does that. But could you talk about how, how, you, uh, how did you decide to, to be in this? Well, you know, I first met John at, at Sundance at the, the moveon.org. Uh, mm party and mm. I, I'd never met John before and the first time really? that I met him I mean if you'd have told me who John Sales was you'd have to show me to him and point it out you know because <laughs> I didn't know his, and I was, first of all I was surprised that he was, we were the same height he's bigger we're the same height but he soon after that <laughs> uh, in 2005 he uh, he got the script to me and the, the, I read the script like that I'm saying I'm in period you know and and then we went through the journey of trying to get it funded. When are we going to do it? We had hoped to do it in 2005, uh, and, but it didn't happen. And, and we're fortunate, and, and we're fortunate, in, you know, that, that John and Maggie uh, believed in what they were doing. And so they put up their own resources to make this happen. That doesn't always happen. The second thing that always happens is most of us know who've been involved with acting. You can see a project that is so worthy of being done one moment and it gets lost in the transition. Next year, it ain't going to happen. You almost, you almost have to let it go at that moment once it gets done. It's not done. But fortunately, you know, I mean, just fortunately, we've been able to, it was able to make that next leap and we found out we were shooting it in, uh, in, the fall of, six, of uh, uh, 2006. One thing I like about the movie a lot is that you, ca- you seem to um, capture a lot of spontaneity, that's what you're talking about, but you decided to shoot in good old 35-millimeter film. You used the cinematographer, Dick Pope, who... Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's a really classic-looking, mm-hmm. handsome mo- movie. The, the two movies previous to that I'd shot in Super 16, and that was fine for those movies. This particular movie, you know, I asked Dick Pope, the cinematographer, who did a great job. He said, we can't get it to have the right look. It won't have the right feel unless we shoot 35. And so, you know, we're going to take the time to do it. Uh, I think we almost killed him to try to make it look that good in five <laughs> weeks, you know, because that's not an easy thing to do. Mm. But, um, um, you know, we pulled it off. 
And since you're both so experienced, you've worked with so many uh, great actors and you work with so many great directors, I'll start with you and just talk a bit about what it was. Was there anything particular, the experience of working with Danny Glover that you could say characterizes him? You know, I I think the fun for me with any actor is I haven't seen this this actor who I know is a good actor do this exact thing before. You know, I don't cast actors because I've seen them do it already. Mm -hmm. I cast actors because I've seen them do some good stuff and I want to know what they're going to come up with. Mm -hmm. So for me, the fun was the first day when I didn't know what voice Danny was going to be in and, and, and you know, what his physical thing was going to come. And just watching the first day and saying, okay, you know, I'm going to see yeah, this guy's going to develop, but I like this guy. You know, th- this is the guy that we're going to deal with. And it's not Danny. It's the guy that he's starting to create. We're not ad-libbing lines or anything like that. Um, but then to see the other actors come and have to react to that guy... Um, and, and, you know, whatever the technical problems you have or line problems or anything like that, you know, Danny's absolutely in the character, which is, is, is what I always tell actors is, look, we're all going to fuck lines up. We're all going to have, you know, the, the, the grip stand fall over during the thing. You know, don't worry about that. Know who your character is. And for each other, you know, be that character. And, and, and that, I think, for, for me was the most fun with working with Danny is just seeing that play out with the other actors, and who's this guy, Tyrone? And, you know, we don't do that many takes in five weeks, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and so a lot of the most interesting stuff is the first or second time you do it. You know, that, that shock of the new that you get between good actors. And could you talk about, about working with John Sales, or maybe what you learned from him? Because I, I think we're all hoping that one day you, you direct... I, I know you have this project on uh, Toussaint Liverture, which... Yeah. which we hope to see you direct soon, so could you talk about working with, seeing this director at work? Well, I mean, outside of the, the, the basic thing of knowing, of working with someone with a vision, working with a director with a vision, who has an idea and a vision that you, you buy into and you believe and you trust, those are the first things that, that come to mind, you know, that I want to be a part of this vision. And certainly once reading the script and then see the application of the vision itself, mm-hmm. which, which is something was really rich for me and wonderful for me. That's, that's the first and obvious thing. And then just to watch how we work. You know, there's a certain work methodology in terms of that, that was so, uh, that, that was inclusive in everything. And they brought everyone in. And that part of it was just really strong for me. And I like that. And the fact that we didn't do a lot of takes. I think that's important. Sometimes we get too married as actors and so too self-indulgent in what we're doing. And we want this take after that take. But sometimes it's there, right there. And being able to be a part of that, it was, 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 uh, was quite, I mean, quite amazing for me. A, a lot of the, tr- the trick with a low-budget movie is to give the actors the illusion that they have all the time they need. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, have your shit together so that, that really it is about the acting when yeah. you hit the set, that, that they, they actually have a lot of time. But it's not unlimited, but, you know, but, but, but not to feel like, oh, you know, that was good enough, let's move. If an actor really doesn't feel like they've done it yet, we'll keep doing it. Hmm. Well, you know, the other thing that, that John said, there's no waste of time. And when you come to that, which you come ready to work and excited about, I was excited every day I came there. 
I was excited about what was going to happen. Of course, I've run through in my mind what I want to do, but something else happens all along between what happens between me and Charles or what happens between uh, Yaya and me or Gary and me or what happens between uh, Lisa Gay Hamilton and me. All those things are, are changing, and you get excited about that yeah. and excited about the idea that now you have the application of this ex- wonderful language that you get a chance to speak and at the same time to use the other kind of elements around you and to be full-fledged deep into that immersed into that moment and what's happening there's a there's a scene in the movie uh between danny and yaya uh where they're 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 hauling ass down this railroad track and they're having this conversation on the move and yaya's character is playing somebody who has a heart defect and, and really shouldn't be running along and um we were shooting it with two cameras, but no real coverage, and it was these these two you know tracking shots along this railroad track, and we were hoping we got it done as the sun is going down and it's getting darker, and so there's no way you can hide from the actors that we're in a hurry, um, and at any moment the CSX railroad train may come through, and that may be the last hour of our day is watching toxic yeah. waste roll through southern Alabama. Yeah. Um, and but there is that great energy which is. Yes, they knew that we were in a hurry and all this kind of stuff, but they absolutely hooked into each other, even though for, you know, it's a, like a, a minute-long scene, 50 seconds of that scene, they're not even looking at each other. Yeah. But, but that connection and that, that energy of, okay, we're going to nail this thing, you know, is really exciting for the whole crew. It's, it's a beautiful, it's a wonderful yeah. moment, you know. It, it, it helps to be a father with a daughter. <laughs> you know, it helps too, you know, for yeah. me, you know. And and so the energy, the energy yeah. of being a father with a daughter, you know, in the same way, played out. It was something that I could use at, yeah. at the moment. And the, and the crew, the crew gets into it too. Yeah, Look yeah. at these guys are just killing this scene. Let's let's not mess anything up. And it was a very difficult scene to do physically, you know, with the, the tracking and the, the lights and yeah. everything like that. Yeah. And so it's like everybody's rooting for each other at that yeah. moment of... Yeah. of well, they're, you know, they're doing it now. It's the defense's time to not make a mistake so that yeah. you know, these guys can you know, go home and we've got the thing in the can. And you did get to do act in a scene. With yeah, you know, I, I, I commit acting every once in a while, um, <laughs> you know, mostly in other people's movies now. Um, but uh, every once in a while there's a part where I feel like, okay, I know how to play this. I don't need to cast somebody else. I don't have to um, pay for the airplane ticket to get them there. I'm in the Screen Actors Guild, you know. Um, and sometimes, quite honestly, in, in the case of this part is, okay, this is a very short scene. You know, whether people know it's me or not, really the important thing is that without really the lines to do it, this guy has to be a little bit of an int- intimidating. And I said, well, who do I know who's taller than Danny Glover? You know, and because we're going to be walking right, right. side by side for a second. You know, just as, you know, in, at the end there's a scene where... You know, uh, you know this character who you think is this this mountainous guy who's a cotton picker ends up between Danny and Charles Dutton, and you realize he's not that big. You know, <laughs> yeah. he better behave himself in this club. Yeah. Sometimes when it's shorthand, you've only got a minute long scene. Just the physicality of a character is important, and, and that's often how I, you know, I started my acting career playing large, retarded people. I was, uh, you know, Lenny in, in Of Mice and Men, and I played Chief Bromden in, in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and so that's often been the, the most notable thing about my performance. <laughs> we, have some, we have something we share. I played Lenny in Mice and Men, uh, too, yeah, you know? Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, I, I remember my mom. <laughs> my mom came to see me play Lenny and I said, man. And she came back and said, this was 1976. She came back to the stage and she said, son, the people said you can act. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I played a catatonic character in, in Cuckoo's Nest in high school, and that was my, the end of my acting. Uh, uh, catatonic's good to start. Yeah. Um, and, but maybe you'll cast him when you direct Tucson. I speak French. <laughs> okay, then there we go. There we go. I'm going to ask you, since you're both so involved in making movies and producing films, now that you have a production company, Louverture Films, you... Um, produce one of the best movies that came out last year, Obamaco. Yeah, yeah. Um, could, could you talk, maybe both of you, how you just see the scene right now getting these projects made? Well, I, I, I tell you, um, <laughs> John, John, I could tell you, it's going to be tough, you know. And it is tough, you know. And I'm, I'm sure that Warrington could tell you the same thing, that it's tough trying to get these movies made. Uh, uh, and we're going to have to be imaginative in, in how we we find financing. Uh, we have to the ones we we have to be imaginative in how we do the P P and A for this, and and that's when we need people's bodies and seats. Mm-hmm. We need to get people's out there. In fact, I had I hadn't told this to John yet, but I had a, my cousin call me. And my cousin lives in Atlanta. He said he said, um, he said Cuz, I haven't talked to you in a while. He said you got a new movie coming out. And I said yeah, Honey Drifter. He said yeah, and, and I know that you go to the biggest church, one of the biggest churches in Atlanta, Ben Hill. He said, yeah. I said, how about your, your minister hoping, hosting something like that? He said, yeah. And we can get, he knows five other ministers, so we can get a theater. So yeah. I call a minister, and he's, he's right on uh, that. You know uh, what I'm yeah. saying? We can get a theater and get people in the seat, get people talking about the movie. This is a very ingenious way of, of doing, of introducing an, 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 a movie to an audience, finding the artist and finding the target audience and getting the word out there. We have an opportunity to do this. Let's use the opportunity so this becomes a template for other people who want to do films and want to find the different ways. Because this movie could easily get lost in the whole shuffle that happens at this time of year. Mm-hmm. And most notably, it doesn't mean, it doesn't care whether my name on it or whether John Sales' name is on it. This is a problem. So, we get to need people to see these movies. And seeing these movies, then we ensure the possibility, and only the possibility, that we can make other movies. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think... You know, what, a lot of what we've been talking about is not accepting the status quo. You know, you hear all the time. I mean, basically, a lot of my motivation for doing anything is somebody tells me you can't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to say that, that, that you know, it's probably not a... a, a very positive character trait in some way, but people say you can't do something. I say, oh, wow, that sounds interesting. Um, and, and, you know, so the, 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 you know, standing wisdom is, okay, you can't open a picture, you know, nowadays unless you've got 15 to $30 million to advertise it, and that's the only way to reach people. Well, there are other ways to reach people, and you just have to be imaginative. And really the trick is, yes, there is an audience for the, the movie that Danny, I'd love to see this movie, you know. Yeah. Um, but getting it made first is one obstacle, and then making sure that those people who would like that movie, who are interested in that movie, can know about it and get there without yeah. spending that extra $30 million, which you probably don't have because you spend it all making the picture. And, and that's where you want to spend it. Yeah. You, know, you want to put it on the screen. I really just want to thank both of you um, for being here tonight. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Well done. Thank you.
All right, good. All right, good. Please welcome Gary Clark Jr. He's going to play some uh, inspiring. Ready to cut you down. 
so much that's all i got thank you for listening the pinewood dialogues at museum of the moving image are made possible by generous support from the pannonia foundation 
To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.